You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode number 191 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. When we left off last time, it was late on Tuesday, September 16th, 1862, the night before the Battle of Antietam. As y'all recall, on Tuesday afternoon, George McClellan had ordered Joseph Hooker's First Corps to cross Antietam Creek. Once across the creek, Hooker was to turn south and search for the Confederate Army's left flank. It was already late in the day, and the sun was going down, as Federals of George Meade's Division of Pennsylvania Reserves, advancing down the Smoketown Road, clashed with John B. Hood's Confederates in and around the East Woods. The Yankees of Truman Seymour's Brigade gained a lodgment in the woods, but then darkness brought a halt to the fighting there north of Sharpsburg. Earlier, after crossing the Antietam, Hooker had expressed concern over the vulnerability of his lone corps there on the west side of the creek, and in response, McClellan had given orders for Joseph Mansfield's 12th Corps to cross over and support Hooker. It was understood that during the upcoming battle, Hooker would be, in effect, a wing commander, in overall command of all Union troops on that part of the battlefield. In any case, it was well after nightfall and raining before the troops of the 12th Corps had crossed the creek, moving in the 1st Corps' wake, and then, after stumbling around in the dark for a while, they finally stopped and took up a supporting position about a mile or so to Hooker's left and rear. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side, Hood persuaded Stonewall Jackson to let him pull back his two brigades from their advanced positions so that in the morning they could cook something hot to eat for the first time in days. Stonewall allowed Hood's men to go into reserve, moving up two other brigades in their place to face the Yankees. But Jackson told Hood that he must bring his men forward on the double if he called for them in the morning. And so the stage is finally set for the Battle of Antietam. George McClellan thought he had won a great victory at South Mountain, and all he would need to do after that was go through the motions of a pursuit and watch in satisfaction as the defeated rebels fled back across the Potomac to Virginia. But then Robert E. Lee had failed to play his part in that and had instead stopped and made a stand at Sharpsburg. Now, to prove he was a general who could plan and fight and win battles, Little Mac would have to cross the Antietam and attack Lee. For Lee's part, he didn't stand and fight at Sharpsburg, 
because he was cornered and forced to it, he could have continued his retreat from South Mountain and almost certainly safely recrossed the Potomac into Virginia. Instead, Lee stood his ground north of the river and dared McClellan to attack him. On the face of it, this made no sense, since by all logic, Lee's strike north lay in shambles after the Confederate defeat at South Mountain. And even when the Confederate army was reunited at Sharpsburg, Lee would have less than 40,000 men to face a Union army that had almost double those numbers. And the troops Lee did have were in wretched physical condition. But there was one advantage to Lee daring McClellan to attack him. Confederate E. Porter Alexander later explained this advantage, writing, quote, There is a single item, but it is an important one. After admitting that McClellan brought an army superior in number and equipment to the battlefield, Alexander then noted that, quote, But he brought himself also. Perhaps the anticipation of that fact encouraged Lee to risk the odds. And we agree with that assessment. To Lee's way of thinking, the fact that Little Mac was the enemy commander was the great equalizer. And so Robert E. Lee made his stand behind Antietam Creek because he was sure beyond doubt that he could defeat George McClellan on any field of battle. It was in the gray of early morning when the sergeant major, walking rapidly along the line of sleeping men, awakened us with a gruff voice to roll call. I arose with a feeling of numbness in my left side, caused by the pressure of my cartridge box against it all night, for we had slept equipped for the battle which we were certain would occur with the daylight. Even as the roll was being called, the musket fire of the picket lines commenced quite briskly, and mounted orderlies came galloping along the lines, seeking the regimental commanders for whom they had orders. Behind us we could hear the continuous whinny of artillery horses, and the braying of mules hauling the ammunition wagons, all expecting their morning feed, which a very few received. Looking along the line, I saw the men wiping the moisture from their muskets, for the dew had been heavy, and just now there was a considerable fog. Others were changing their gun caps or adjusting a knapsack, putting canteen and haversack well behind to give free access to the cartridge box. Others were munching hardtack, and some were smoking. Several of my comrades with canteens had gone for water with the evident intention of making coffee, while others had made little fires for cooking breakfast, taking rails from an adjacent fence for the purpose when suddenly and sternly came the order to get back into the ranks. The expected breakfast was soon forgotten. The symptoms of an impending battle had been apparent for more than 24 hours, and we knew the culmination of another great tragedy was at hand. Private William F. Goodhue, 3rd Wisconsin Infantry, Gordon's Brigade. Between our lines and the enemy stood a handsome country house in which, it seems, all the women and children in the neighborhood had assembled for mutual protection, not thinking that part of the country would be the scene of conflict. 
Between us and the house was a roughly plowed field. When the cannonade began, the house happened to be right in the line between Pelham's battery and that of the enemy occupying the opposite hills, the batteries firing clear over the top of the house at each other. When the crossing shells began screaming over the house, its occupants thought their time had come, and like a flock of birds they came running out, hair streaming in the wind, and children of all ages stretched out behind, and tumbling at every step over the clods of the plowed field. Every time one would fall, the rest thought it was the result of a cannon shot, and ran the faster. It was impossible to keep from laughing at this sudden eruption, and impossible to persuade them to return. I galloped out to meet them and represented to them that they were safe, probably, where they had been, but it was no use, so swinging up before and behind me as many children as my horse could carry, I escorted them to our lines and quieted the fears of the party, assuring them that they were not in danger of immediate death. Seeing what was going on, the batteries on each side ceased firing until the little party was disposed of. Captain William W. Blackford, Staff, Major General Jeb Stewart. It was just three weeks after Second Manassas, and the Union and Confederate armies were about to fight another great battle. In his book, Landscape Turned Red, Stephen Sears writes, quote, The Antietam battlefield, as it gradually emerged in the foggy half-light of dawn on Wednesday, September 17, 1862, was a largely anonymous landscape, except for such casual, everyday designations as this farmer's woodlot, or that farmer's lane, or someone else's cornfield. The war would change all that, imprinting names of its own for the historical record, names like the East Woods, the West Woods, the Cornfield, the Sunken Road. The new names were every bit as mundane as what the local people had called these places, but for the thousands of men who would fight desperately there, and for countless others, north and south, who were touched at second hand by the struggle, they would echo forever in the mind, terrible and heroic and melancholy. Sears goes on, saying, quote, For the moment, in that first gray light of morning, the names were just names, without echoes to them. Shortly after five, as the sky began to lighten, Joe Hooker rode up to the picket line to inspect the ground in front of his first corps. His objective was easily chosen, a raised, open plateau just to the east of the Hagerstown Turnpike and a mile from where he was standing. It was thickly ranked with Confederate guns and visible just across the turnpike from it was a small, plain, whitewashed building set into a patch of woods. Many of the soldiers took it for a schoolhouse, but it was in fact a church of the German Baptist Brethren, a gentle and pacifist sect that shunned such vanities of the world as church steeples, and whose baptism by total immersion led people to call them Dunkers. If General Hooker could seize the plateau and the area around the Dunker church, it would mean a breakthrough. The woodlot on the west side of the turnpike, the West Woods, ran from the church northward along the pike for some 300 yards, where it was cut back to make room for two roadside fields planted in clover. Behind these fields, the woods continued north in an irregular strip 
to a point halfway between the church and the first corps jumping-off position on the Joseph Poffenberger farm. At that halfway point, the prosperous farmstead of David R. Miller straddled the Hagerstown Pike, with barn and haystacks to the west, and house and kitchen garden and orchard to the east. Just beyond the house and orchard, Hooker could see Miller's 30-acre cornfield, the corn taller than a man and ready for harvest. The Miller cornfield, soon to gain a terrible fame as the cornfield, extended eastward to the edge of another woodlot, the East Woods, where Hood's Confederates and Meade's Federals had clashed the evening before, and where nervous pickets kept up a brisk exchange of fire throughout the night. Hooker's plan was to attack due south toward the Dunker Church along the axis of the Hagerstown Turnpike. The division of Abner Doubleday would advance on the right along the pike and through the Miller Farm toward the West Woods. Doubleday had succeeded John Hatch in command of the division after Hatch was wounded at South Mountain. James Ricketts' division on the left would advance through the cornfield and the East Woods. George Meade's division minus Truman Seymour's brigade, would back them up in the center. Remember that Seymour had held his position in the East Woods through the night. Right. Anyway, Fighting Joe Hooker had told McClellan that he would attack at first light on Wednesday morning, and he kept his word. As was mentioned just a moment ago, Hooker's goal was the Dunker Church and the open ground just to the east of the church. Hooker no doubt concluded that if he could seize that area, he would be a fair way toward rolling up the enemy flank here on the northern end of the battlefield. But the 8,600 men of the 1st Corps would open the battle here on this part of the field on their own, since there was no plan for a coordinated attack with Mansfield's 12th Corps. As a division commander on the peninsula and at Second Bull Run, Hooker had maneuvered three brigades of infantry with energy and skill, leading from the front to encourage his men by example and to maintain control of his units in the midst of the stress and confusion of battle. A good corps commander needed those skills, as well as others. It was difficult enough for a general experienced in divisional command to quickly grasp and master the technique of corps command. Hooker, however, had led First Corps for less than two weeks, and in its only major combat at South Mountain, Hooker had been subordinate to Burnside. Now, for the Battle of Antietam, McClellan had assigned Hooker the semi-independent command of a two-corps wing, which made him responsible for coordinating the action of all the Union troops on the northern sector of the battlefield. In his book, The Long Road to Antietam, Richard Slotkin notes that rather than acting like a wing commander, quote, Hooker handled the assignment like a corps commander. He chose his objective, and half an hour before sunrise, his aides delivered the orders that would organize his own three divisions for an assault. Not until all that was done did an aide carry to General Mansfield the order to bring 12th Corps forward to support 1st Corps' attack. By the time the order was delivered, however, 1st Corps was already heavily engaged. Slotkin continues, saying, quote, Mansfield needed more guidance than that. He was nearly 60 years old, had only commanded his corps for 48 hours, and had not exercised field command for 15 years. 
Hooker should have conferred with him well before dawn to make certain he understood the lay of the land, the planned course of action, and Twelfth Corps' role in it. Lacking such preparation, Mansfield understood the order to support Hooker's attack only in the most general terms. He was unsure about how, where, and when Hooker wanted his support. Twelfth Corps was therefore slow to assemble and hesitant coming forward. It would take an hour or more to bring Mansfield's 10,000 troops into action. Until then, Hooker's three divisions would have to fight a Confederate force of comparable strength. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Stonewall Jackson could muster about 7,700 men to meet the expected federal attack on the northern part of the battlefield on Wednesday morning. The better part of two divisions were placed in a defensive posture near the Dunker Church. Dick Yule had lost a leg at 2nd Manassas, and now his division was commanded by Alexander Lawton, and Stonewall's old division was now led by J.R. Jones. Jones' four brigades were in and close to the West Woods, a quarter mile or so to the north of the church. Lawton had one brigade in a pasture immediately south of the cornfield and another in line farther to the east, extending across the Smoketown Road and over onto the farm of Samuel Mama. Early on the morning of the 17th, the Mama farmhouse was already a battlefield landmark of sorts, since the Confederates had just put it to the torch so it wouldn't be used as a strong point by Yankee sharpshooters, and now a tall pillar of black smoke rose into the morning sky. The rebels' north-facing battle line was about three-fourths of a mile long. 
Lawton's two remaining brigades, plus the two brigades of Hood's division, were in reserve in the West Woods. Skirmishers were posted well to the front on the Miller Farm and in the East Woods, but except for a few rebel skirmishers at its southern edge, the cornfield itself was empty of Confederates. Confederate Colonel Stephen D. Lee, who was no relation to General Lee, had crowded four batteries from his artillery battalion onto the plateau-like area just to the east of the Dunker Church, and from there his guns had a clear field of fire to the north and east. However, the most commanding high ground here on the northern part of the battlefield was Nicodemus Heights, west of the Hagerstown Turnpike. Jeb Stewart and the very capable commander of his horse artillery, Captain John Pelham, had positioned 14 guns on the hill, where they were in a perfect spot to bombard the Yankees in the flank as they advanced. Stonewall Jackson sent Jubal Early's brigade from his thin reserve to protect this key spot. Federal officers would repeatedly complain about the devastating rebel cannon fire from Nicodemus Heights early on in the battle, but other than counter-battery fire from Union guns, nothing was done about it. For some inexplicable reason, Hooker apparently never gave a thought to seizing this key piece of high ground on his right flank, either to deny it to the Confederates or to post Union cannon there. Many historians consider Hooker's failure to recognize the importance of Nicodemus Heights as perhaps his worst mistake at Antietam. Lieutenant A.W. Garber, commanding one of Stewart's batteries on Nicodemus Heights, would later lay claim to firing the opening shot of the Battle of Antietam on Wednesday morning. Be that as it may, Stewart's guns and Doubleday's were blazing away at each other soon after 5 a.m., that is, just as soon as it was light enough to see targets. After the rain overnight, the day dawned overcast and Apache ground fog lingered in the hollows and woodlots, hampering visibility for a time. But soon enough, S.D. Lee's rebel batteries near the Dunker Church joined in, as did the big federal guns east of the Antietam. One of Meade's Federals later said that the, quote, thunder-like cracking of the bursting shells, the whistling, rocking, shrieking of the heavy missiles soon became one prolonged roar. It was during this time that the scene took place with the terrified women and children in that quote that Tracy read from Captain William Blackford from Jeb Stewart's staff. Blackford galloped into the field, swung several children up onto his horse, and escorted the rest of the refugees to safety, noting with approval that the Yankee gunners held their fire during the rescue. But there was no truce over in the East Woods, where the Federals of Truman Seymour's brigade resumed the fight that darkness had interrupted the night before. Even as Hooker was getting Doubleday's and Ricketts divisions ready to advance, Seymour in the East Woods pushed three of his regiments forward as soon as it was light enough to see. The Pennsylvanians drove ahead until they reached the southern edge of the woods, and from there, from behind trees and a snake rail fence, they opened a sharp fire on the Confederate line in a plowed field on the Mumma farm. The rebels Seymour's men were firing at were from Isaac Trimble's brigade, which was now being led at Antietam by Colonel James Walker, after Trimble was severely wounded at 2nd Manassas. 
Walker's Confederates crouched in the dirt or took cover behind the Mama family graveyard to return the Yankees' fire. When the 13th Pennsylvania Reserves, the Bucktails, started to run out of ammunition, they were ordered to pull back. But the colonel of the regiment alongside the Bucktails, seeing them withdraw, mistakenly also started his men toward the rear and out of the fight. Walker's rebels then drove back the 3rd of Seymour's regiments and won some relief, but not much, because within a matter of minutes, a fresh federal battle line came marching south through the Miller cornfield. Even as Seymour's brigade had renewed the battle in the East Woods, Hooker had been getting the divisions of Doubleday and Ricketts into attacking positions. On the Union left, Alfred Durier, with three regiments of New Yorkers and one of Pennsylvanians, would lead off for Ricketts, while to their right, a brigade of Westerners, three Wisconsin regiments, and one from Indiana, commanded by John Gibbon, would spearhead Doubleday's advance. As soon as Ricketts' columns, forming the left wing of the First Corps' assault, cleared the cover of Joseph Poffenberger's woodlot, soon to be better known as the North Woods, S.D. Lee's rebel gunners down near the Dunker Church spotted them and opened fire on them with shells and solid shot. Dozens of Yankees, as they advanced southward, were knocked out of the ranks before they were on the battlefield five minutes. As Ricketts' leading brigade under Alfred Durier deployed at the northern edge of the cornfield, two Pennsylvania batteries under Captains Ezra Matthews and James Thompson hurried forward to take up supporting positions in the field east of the Miller Orchard. These federal cannon quickly started to duel with Lee's batteries near the church. A few of the Yankee guns did take the time to throw a few precautionary rounds of canister into the cornfield, and then about 6 a.m., Duryea's 1,100 men started to advance through the head-high corn. Colonel Marcellus Douglas had his brigade of Georgians posted in the rolling pasture south of the cornfield, with some of the men sheltered behind fence rails they had torn down and piled up. Douglas had told his men to lie down, pick out a row of corn as an aiming point, and wait for the order to fire. When Duryea's New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians came out of the corn, the Georgians rose up and delivered a surprise blast of musketry that shattered the Yankees' first rank. More Federals pushed forward over the dead and wounded of their first line to return the Confederates' fire, and in what would become a common scene on this bloody day, the two battle lines stood facing each other in the open, blazing away just as fast as they could fire and reload their muskets. With no wind to speak of that morning, clouds of dirty white smoke hung low in the air over the pasture and the cornfield. Finally, neither side could take the strain of standing there in the open any longer, and, as if by mutual consent, both Confederates and Federals found what shelter they could or simply dropped to the ground and continued firing. Walker brought most of his brigade over from the Mumma Farm across the Smoketown Road to shelter behind a rocky ledge in the pasture to join the fight against the Yankees at the edge of the cornfield. There, the fire of the 12th Georgia, 21st Georgia, and 21st North Carolina added to that of Douglas's Georgians, caught Duryea's Federals in a deadly converging fire. 
When some of Walker's men try to advance farther and outflank the Yankees, those rebels, in turn, were hit in the flank by fire from the remnants of Seymour's Pennsylvanians in the East Woods. When Walker gave the order to advance, he'd noticed that just a few of the men in the 12th Georgia responded. The rest remained on the ground behind the rocky ledge. Riding over to see what the problem was, Walker found only dead and wounded. The 12th Georgia had taken a hundred men into the battle, and now only about forty remained unhurt. Ricketts had intended that Duryea's brigade would be promptly reinforced by the division's other two brigades, but for the men of this division, September 17th would be a bad day all around. One of the supporting brigades was delayed back at its starting point when its commander, George Hartsuff, was badly wounded by a shell fragment. Colonel Richard Coulter finally got everything straightened out and hurried the brigade forward. Ricketts' other brigade was thrown into confusion when the colonel in command, William Christian, suddenly lost his nerve and fled the battlefield. As a result of all that, Duryea's troops were left isolated at the southern edge of the cornfield, taking fearful losses and under growing pressure from superior Confederate numbers. When his ammunition started to run low, Duryea ordered a withdrawal back through the cornfield. The color bearer of the 107th Pennsylvania was down, but Private John Delancey, the youngest man in the regiment since he had somehow managed to enlist when he was just 14, picked up the regimental flag and helped rally the men at the northern edge of the cornfield. Duryea's brigade completed its withdrawal in good enough order, but it would fight no more that day. In 30 minutes of fierce combat, almost a third of the brigade's men had been shot down. At least in piecemeal fashion, Ricketts' remaining two brigades of Federals pushed through the cornfield and the east woods to the killing ground at its southern edge. While Christian's brigade was trying to sort itself out after its commander fled, Hartsuff's troops under Colonel Coulter emerged from the cornfield and the east woods to meet a blizzard of Confederate fire. A soldier in the 83rd New York later wrote in a letter that, quote, Just in front of us, a house was burning, and the fire and smoke, the flashing of muskets and whizzing of bullets, yells of men, etc., were perfectly horrible. S.D. Lee's guns down near the Dunker Church had the exact range, and Yankees were knocked sprawling seemingly at every step forward. A Massachusetts soldier later said, I do not see how any of us got out alive. The shot and shell fell about as thick and fast, I can tell you, but I did not think much about getting shot after the first volley. That soldier was amazed that, except for a bullet that nicked his shoe, he was untouched. This was a common reaction among Antietam survivors on both sides. The air had seemed so thick with bullets and shells that it seemed miraculous they had lived through it. By this point, the battered Confederate regiments on this part of the battlefield were barely hanging on. The survivors were scavenging the cartridge boxes of the dead and wounded for more ammunition. To meet this new Yankee threat, Lawton rushed a fresh brigade into the fray. They were Harry Hayes' famous, or infamous, Louisiana Tigers. 
As they advanced across the pasture toward the cornfield, the Tigers were shelled by Thompson's and Matthew's Pennsylvania batteries, but the Louisianans kept charging forward, and then they collided head-on with Coulter's Federals. One of the regiments the Tigers faced was the 12th Massachusetts. It had gone off to war soon after Fort Sumter, commanded by Colonel Fletcher Webster, the son of Daniel Webster. But Colonel Webster was dead, killed at Second Bull Run, and now the 12th Massachusetts emerged from the cornfield to encounter what the regimental historian called, quote, the most deadly fire of the war. The charge of the Louisiana Tigers, joined by some of Douglas's Georgians, drove Coulter's Federals back into the corn and the fringes of the East Woods. One of the Federals later said, quote, Never did I see more Rebs to fire at than at that moment presented themselves. Corporal Lewis Reed of the 12th Massachusetts saw men fall all around him, when suddenly he too was on the ground. There was no pain, but he did experience, quote, a strange feeling covering my body. I found my shirt and blouse filled with blood, and I supposed it was my last day on earth. I had the usual feelings of home and friends, end quote. But those weren't Lewis's last thoughts. As sensation returned, he discovered he had been shot through the shoulder. He struggled to his feet and slowly made his way, staggering and half-feigning, to the East Woods to join a heart-rending parade of walking wounded on their way to the rear. He was one of 224 casualties in the 12th Massachusetts, which, in a matter of minutes, suffered the highest rate of loss, 67%, of any federal regiment at the Battle of Antietam. As Hayes and Douglas's Confederates pushed their counterattack right up to the southern edge of the cornfield, Captain Thompson aggressively moved his Pennsylvania battery right into the corn and found a position on a little piece of high ground in the center of the field from which he could pour fire at the rebels. Meanwhile, the Confederate batteries near the Dunker Church were pouring shells into the cornfield and solid shot into the east woods. As the musketry and cannon fire rose to a fever pitch, Hayes' Louisianans and Douglas's Georgians faltered as they were caught in a converging arc of fire from the cornfield to their front and the east woods on their right. Colonel Douglas was killed, and every one of Hayes' regimental commanders was down, and finally the surviving Confederates drifted back to what cover there was behind the piles of fence rails and in the dips of ground and rocky outcroppings in the pasture. From there, they kept up a steady fire on the rapidly thinning Federal ranks in the corn and in the woods. By now, the infantry fight on this part of the battlefield was something over an hour old. At 7 a.m., Ricketts 3rd Brigade finally advanced through the East Woods. After Colonel Christian's shameful flight to the rear, the brigade, brigade was now led by Colonel Peter Lyle of the 90th Pennsylvania. As the brigade finally moved forward, Coulter hurried back from the front line, found Lyle, and called out, For God's sake, come and help us out. Coulter's wrecked formations were pulled back, and Lyle's men took their places, continuing the murderous exchange of fire with the rebels to the south of the cornfield. When the order was given to withdraw, only 32 men of the 12th Massachusetts were still on their feet to escort the colors to the rear. A few score men would eventually turn up, 
but when a final count was made after the battle, the proud 12th was little more than a shell of its former self. While the 12th Massachusetts had the terrible distinction of suffering the highest casualty rate of any federal regiment that day, 67%, losses among the Louisiana Tigers were very nearly as great, 61%. For the moment, although the fire hardly slackened, the battle in the eastern part of the cornfield and the east woods was stalemated. Through an unfortunate series of circumstances, the attacks of Ricketts' three brigades were made piecemeal without any coordination, and the Confederates were able to counter each Federal move. Nor had the Federals been able to make their overall superiority in artillery felt. From their excellent position near the Dunker Church, S.D. Lee's rebel cannon had played a major role in breaking up Ricketts' attack. While Hooker's left wing under Ricketts was making its fight in the eastern part of the cornfield and the east woods, Doubleday's division moved forward and took the offensive on Hooker's right in the area of the Hagerstown Turnpike. But that part of the story will have to wait until next week. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Bloodiest Day, The Battle of Antietam by Ronald H. Bailey and the editors of Time Life Books. This is a part of the classic Time Life series of books on the major battles and campaigns of the Civil War. And a lot of you are probably familiar with this series. Uh, The books have those distinctive silvery gray colored covers. Anyway, we just wanted to point out that while the volumes in this series may not have much for the die-hard Civil War buff, we think they are an excellent way to introduce people to the war, especially kids or teens or really anyone who may not know much about the Civil War. They have lots of great illustrations and photos and maps. Now, they are long out of print, but they're still easily picked up uh, on eBay, for example, Uh, So there you go. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Oh, and by the way, we've mentioned Abner Doubleday before on the podcast. In fact, he was a U.S. Army officer at Fort Sumter at the start of the war. But here at Antietam, he's leading one of Hooker's divisions, And for those of you perhaps just joining us on the podcast for Antietam, we'll just point out again that... Abner Doubleday did not invent baseball. Abner Doubleday did not invent baseball. Uh, Although baseball was a very popular pastime with soldiers of both armies during the Civil War. In fact, we may do a members episode sometime about baseball and other activities that the men engaged in for fun. But speaking of members' episodes, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Tim and Ted and Adam. And Brayden and Raphael and Rick. And John and Sarah. Thanks to one and all. And a big thank you to Kip and Jonathan for their donations this past week. As we close, just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. 
Besides Midnight on the Water, Spiritwood Music has lots of other great songs, which you can find on iTunes and Amazon and Google Play. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Antietam. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.